Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 362 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is best-selling thriller writer Jeffrey Deaver. He's the author of more than 35 novels and three short story collections, and his books have been sold in 150 countries and translated into 25 languages. His 1997 novel, The Bone Collector, the first volume in the Lincoln Rhyme series, was adapted into a feature film starring Denzel Washington and Angelina Jolie. And we'll be speaking with Jeff today about his latest novel, The Never Game, about a kidnapper who seems to be modeling his crimes on a popular video game. And now here's our interview with Jeffrey Deaver. All right, so we're here with Jeffrey Deaver. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Dave. Okay, so your new book is called The Never Game. So what made you want to start up a new series with a new protagonist? Um, I, I, about 30 years ago, it pains me to say that. I, I'd actually written a few books at that point, but a uh, long, long time ago, I had a series about a fellow who uh, traveled around the country, sort of an itinerant um, a pri- amateur private eye, I guess you'd call him, and he was a location scout for a film company. And he would go to town uh, looking for movies, and of course something uh, uh, untoward would happen. You know, you know, like in a Tom Cruise movie or Bruce Willis movie, you never want to be the sidekick hmm. because in the first twenty minutes the sidekick gets gets off. Well, uh, that's what happened to my uh, my character uh, John Pelham. And it, it started to get, I love the idea of regional mysteries of a fellow traveling around the country, sort of a la Shane, you know, the old Alan Ladd Jr. movie. But it got a little, um, I guess I would say contrived because he'd come to town, get set with the movie, and then something bad would happen. So I went on to write books like The, uh, the Bone Collector and uh, several other series. But I had it in the back of my mind that I always wanted to revisit that. And I guess it was a couple of years ago, I was watching a, a true crime story. and. It, it mentioned a, a reward that was offered for finding the, uh, the, the murder of a, uh, a young woman, I think, in New England somewhere, um, one that had a cold case. Nobody had been able to solve it. And I thought, ah, there's my idea. There's my fellow. I created a character, Coulter Shaw, who travels around the country in a Winnebago uh, looking for um, rewards. And, uh, you know, we can talk and chat a little bit more about him if you like. But I will say that he isn't really interested in the money. It turns out, not much of a surprise, but it, it turns out he doesn't really care about the money what he likes about a reward is that it it represents a problem that no one else has been able to solve because if there were no reward if the case had been solved it wouldn't be a, an issue it would be sort of a you know straightforward kind of case but if no one can find the missing person if no one can find the escape fugitive and a reward is offered that's a red flag to him that he being a restless man self-described restless man jumps into the uh, fray and uh, tries to track down the, uh, the criminal or find the missing person. It's funny what you were saying about the, um, you know, the, the location scout who always and stumbles across a murder. You know, years ago, I watched a panel at a conference and there was a woman and she wrote a series of murder mysteries set at a college. And so each year there was somebody got murdered. And she said, mm-hmm. by the time she got to book four or five or something, she was like, why is anyone going to this school still? You know. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, uh, the, uh, of course, the ranks of the students had been decimated by that <laughs> point. So they had tuition problems, too, I would imagine. But, um, <laughs> but so, yeah, but so this uh, this idea of going around the country just to collect rewards, this isn't something that anyone has actually done. This is something that you just you dreamed up all by yourself. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to be, uh, you know, credible about it. And I try to uh, uh, write authentically. And I suggest in the book that there are other people who do this. Of course, we know bond enforcement agents who, if you you know, you, you skip bail or something, they track you down. We've seen some TV shows about that. But I had, um, uh, I, I did research and a, a fair amount of research just couldn't find anybody who did this for a profession. Of course, I write fiction, you know, I make up stuff for a living. So that, that didn't stop me. I was kind of hoping for like a national association of reward seekers <laughs> or uh, an organization like that. But, uh, but I, you know, I, you know, there is no such, such thing. And, uh, you know, to be honest, the reward really doesn't play a huge role. It, it's a um, uh, inciting incident. That's a, a term in Hollywood that's sort of like the set piece beginning that starts the characters on their journey. And uh, sometimes he, um, he he may get the uh, uh, reward, but sometimes he just gives it away or uh, to the uh, despair of his business agent says, oh, you know what? You look like you're having a tough time here. Pay me 
give me 10% of it. Oh, you can't even do that. We'll work out easy terms. And his, uh, he's got an accountant, kind of lawyer, business manager. It's always perplexing her when, <laughs> uh, when she hears he's done that. Yeah. Well, so Coulter Shaw, he has this interesting backstory where he was raised on this compound with a survivalist dad. Yeah, I, uh, this is, this is kind of interesting, Dave. Um, I've always been a plot-driven writer, and if you like, we can certainly chat about the technique, but uh, in, in uh, a nutshell, I, I spent about eight months outlining my books. That's all I do. Well, I do research at the same time, but it's it's the pre-planning. In um, uh, the case of The Never Game, the outline ended up being about, 100, about 150 pages. It has, as all of my books, um, you know, the, for the last 30 or so, I wrote some kind of simpler murder mysteries a long, long time ago. But when I started to write the thrillers, the bigger books, they have three, uh, at least three subplots going on at the same time. They have a lot of internal reversals and they have um, uh, surprise endings. Each book has at least three surprise endings so that we think it's done and yet there's still 30 pages left. What's going on here? And I <laughs> turn the tables yet again. So by that, I simply mean that I, I'm a very... Um, story-driven author. I love the way plots fit together and they're kind of choreographed. And I, I had always let the characters take a bit of a second place to that. And, um, and, and you know, some authors write exclusively character-driven stories. Um, I wrote a James Bond novel a few years ago. And um, if you've ever read any of those, I'm not talking about the movies now, but the original Ian Fleming books, we meet the good guy, that's James Bond, and we meet the bad guy who might be Blofeld or uh, some other uh, Goldfinger, some other evil uh, evil dude. And it's it's a very linear story. We know there's going to be uh, a confrontation at the end, and and yet the why we read those books is about the characters. But I I tended to not pay too much attention to the characters, and I'd like to you know give them a backstory and make them fairly fleshed out. But then I read something uh, that I found quite interesting. Uh, this was um, a few years ago, that the same part of our brain, and I'm sure among your listeners, there'd be a neuroscientist who could, or a medical person who could explain this, but the same part of our brain that recognizes our connections with real human beings, whether they're good or bad, you know, family members, I, I guess family members could be good or bad too, but, but when we have a real emotional connection with someone, uh, it, it's the same as when we read a character and that was a very enlightening thing for me to um uh for me to realize and it kind of explains why uh harry potter for instance ron and hermione and the whole crew from hogwarts and james bond and other uh, characters like my my lincoln rhyme character from the bone collector series people love him and it's it's that there is actually uh, apparently a physiologic response to that it was a long way of explaining that when I wrote The Never Game, I thought I, I, I want to do more with, with Coulter. It certainly is a plot-driven book, but I wanted to give him, uh, you know, really a, 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 a very layered background and very, uh, very quickly, I'll explain what it is. Uh, his father was a brilliant um, professor at an unnamed university in San Francisco Bay. Uh, it's, it's really Berkeley, but I don't, I don't mention that. And he was uh, kind of a quirky fellow, uh, amateur historian. Uh, he loved the American West. He was a, um, a scientist as well, and uh, uh, believe it or not, uh, people do this. They do physics for a hobby, and that was one of his hobbies. He taught uh, political science as well, and he made a discovery. Now, I don't exactly, well, I don't at all talk about what that discovery is, but we learn fairly early in the book that the, uh, this is in the Never Game now, that uh, whatever that discovery is, it, it lit some fuses among some people who appear pretty reprehensible. And they, um, they started to come after him. And he, he picked up the family, his wife and three children, and moved to a, a compound in the Sierra Nevada mountains and learned uh, survivalism and uh, taught that to the children, never explaining really who was after them and why. And there was apparently... Uh, within the family and among his colleagues, this concept that he's a paranoid schizophrenic, and he certainly did have some issues along those lines. Um, but um, he, he, nonetheless, he said, well, you kids are going to have to uh, protect yourself. You're going to have to learn to defend yourself. So uh, he, uh, he, Colter Shaw, was raised as a uh, uh, survivalist, not out of wacko, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the alt-right um, 
the the end is coming kind of uh, uh, kind of survivalist. There's a, I did some research on that, and there's a whole panoply of uh, people who simply want to drop out. Some don't uh, really care for the government. Some don't trust the government. Some believe the aliens from planet Xantar will be coming down at any minute. But but he simply it, it, there was no politics involved. It was simply I want to protect myself and protect my family when the bad thing comes. And we don't learn about the bad thing in this book, but I'm working on the sequel right now, and we get a few more hints about the bad thing. You know, I don't generally meet a lot of survivalists living in New York, but uh, I met this guy one time. He was a <laughs> photographer, and he had done a story on um, survivalists, I think out in Utah or something. And he said he was talking – it was this um, couple. They had just gotten married, and they'd gone to a shooting range for their wedding reception. And he said that the <laughs> the wife said that she always carried four guns at any given time. And he said, well, why do you need four guns? And she said, well, if somebody grabs me like this, then I can reach this gun and shoot him like this. And if somebody grabs me like this, I can reach this gun and shoot him like this. And – that's always stuck in my mind. I don't know if you encountered any sort of characters like that in your research. No, I and I, I will uh, tell you, talking about technique again, when I was uh, a, a much younger writer, I was uh, filled with uh, the, um, the concept that one had to experience the same thing the character did in your book. And I, I lived in uh, Manhattan for a long time. That's where I was living when I uh, wrote my um, uh, my first books. And uh, I, I would I, I bugged the New York uh, City police, who are very, very gracious and, and generous with their time. But I'd say, I, I've got to get into your your radio dispatch center. I've got to listen to uh, the, the radio calls as they come in and see what buttons they push. And then I, I did a uh, a book uh, that featured the uh, the bomb squad out of the 6th Precinct, which uh, if any of your listeners know New York, that's in the Greenwich Village, the West Village. And uh, so they said, oh, oh, sure, come on in. So I walk in and they're it was a, the appointed time, and I'm, I, I walk in. These two guys are, are staring down at a thing that looks like a stick of dynamite, and one of them says, "Oh God!" and he stands up and pitches it to me. <laughs> and um, of course, you know they knew the uh, uh, the, the green writer was uh, was in, and I had uh, you know a fun time with them, petted the dogs, the bomb sniffing dogs, and so forth, and and took voluminous notes, probably a tenth of which I used. Um, I found that when you actually talk to people, you you tend to get um, uh, you know, so enamored of their story that it skews you away from yours. And so, no, I didn't uh, talk to any survivalists. Most of the research I do is is online. And then I have a, um, I do have a rather vivid imagination, so I can kind of sit back and, and picture what it would would, would be like. Um, and so, um, I didn't. Although I, I I had I had a lot of fun creating uh, the uh, uh, Coulter Shaw's father's survivalist mode. He he would sit around no no computer of course absolutely we all know the uh, dangers of computer given your uh, uh, your uh, podcast of <laughs> course uh, the, the the misuse and, and so forth and the, the spine and, and things like that but he um, would read to the uh, the children and the favorite book he made them actually memorize uh, self reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson and that was kind of his uh, kinder gentler form of um, of survivalism, although he also taught the children to fight, to shoot, to make weapons. Uh, graduation was uh, climbing a hundred-foot uh, cliff in the um, in the dark, uh, not solo free climbing, uh, but that where you you have no ropes, but you're roped in, but you cannot use where it's free climbing. You can't use ropes to um, uh, assist your ascent, but it's, you know it's a safety thing. So you're not gonna if you fall, you're not gonna hurt yourself too badly. Yeah, but so you didn't feel any pressure to to do that as part of your research? No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, uh, I, my my excuse uh, was uh, well, I'm really busy, and I actually am quite busy. I, I write at least a book a year on uh, four or five short stories, and then I'm I'm on uh, tour. I spend about two months out of the year touring. So my excuse was I'm I'm too busy. But the fact is, probably a better author than I would have. Um, gone out west somewhere and gotten nice and buff and then uh, <laughs> you know insisted that he or she be dropped uh, with i don't know a, you know a, 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 a container of crackers and one safety pin and have to make their way back to uh, to civilization well, so you mentioned the misuse of computers, and one reason I wanted to talk to you about this book in particular is because it involves Silicon Valley, um, which is mm -hmm. really relevant for this podcast, so sort of what gave you the the idea that you wanted to write a book set in Silicon Valley? Sure. Um, this is the the fourth of what I call my uh, um, high tech uh, quartet 
of books. Um, going back to 1999, I wrote a book called The Blue Nowhere, also set in Silicon Valley, about a uh, uh, psychotic computer hacker who used a, a modem. And now when I talk about the book, it's still you know, rather popular. It, it kind of gets into the uh, the mystique of those early days, you know, the 1990s in Silicon Valley. And um, people are, are still interested, but I, I, you know, I'll say that he, he hacked in via a modem and the kids just have no idea what that is. Um, it's like almost as scary as a serial killer, the idea of using a modem. I, I know. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was quite humbling, actually. And then occasionally I'll get somebody who, and I'm not going to do it, but I'll get somebody who was in the industry or at least remembers the, what is it, 24 baud, 2400 baud, and he can make that noise, the dial-up yeah, yeah. noise, <laughs> the kind of crackly noise. So um, anyway, that was the first one, the, uh, the Blue Nowhere. Uh, the second was um, a book called The Broken Window, which was about uh, data mining. And uh, a serial killer actually worked for a data mining company. And of course, as you, uh, I'm sure know, and I'm, I'm sure it's been on your uh, your podcast, the um, absolute ubiquity of data mining operations. Uh, the government is really the, uh, a small portion of it. It's mostly commercial data miners, but they share that with the uh, government, of course, and that um, that was a... Um, kind of a, a frightening thing. And I, I had a, in that book, uh, The Broken Window, I had a uh, uh, this character who was a serial killer, but sometimes for the fun of it, he would simply steal someone's identity and destroy their life. And, and that would be his project for six months. And they'd, some ended up to be suicide, uh, some ended up bankrupt, their families uh, falling apart. Uh, the uh, third was um, a book called Roadside Crosses, in which... Um, there is a, a podcaster, actually, a blogger, I should say, um, and uh, he uses his blog as a platform to uh, disseminate uh, fake news. And But he does it uh, tactically, he does it in a way to destroy people's lives and, so, and also as a cover-up for the um, other crimes that he uh, perpetrates. So he kind of shifts, shifts the play. And finally, we come to number four, which is the Never Game, and that is about... Um, uh, about video games. And if I can tell you where the specific idea came from very quickly, I was um, visiting my family in, in Austin and uh, my, uh, I think at the time, eight, eight-year-old niece said, uh, uh, Uncle Jeff, can we, um, can we play um, uh, video games? And I, I said, well, honey, I, I played a little bit, but I really don't know much about it. And she said, that's okay. I'll show you. And instantly she took my cell phone, got my passcode and downloaded a game. I, I think it was I think it was Minecraft. Um, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. But we were, we did the online version, so we both connected to Wi-Fi. And I'm looking at it, and I, you know, I, I see that kind of odd landscape, <laughs> and I can see her avatar, and she could see mine. And I said, "Honey, well, uh, what do I do now?" And she said, "You die." And she pulled out uh, a, a sword, I did, you know, and just stabbed me or cut my head off or something. And I was a little cross because I, I didn't know the rules of the game. I, I, I didn't. <laughs> I'd heard that. Oh, I think that Minecraft was a, um, um, a kind of a, you know, they're, they're called like the social games where you build things and, you know, you have to, uh, I know this, you like to, you should be in your house after dark for some reason, but you, you know, you raise, raise things and build stuff. Then there's also the survival mode and that's what, uh, what we were playing. Uh, and then, you know, she explained it to me and we had, uh, we had a lot of fun playing, but in the back of my mind, I thought, well, what if somebody were to take a video game? And uh, bring it out of the uh, computer, out of the uh, uh, out of the digital world, and reenact it in in real life. And that uh, the um, uh, people who were trying to uh, solve the crime and rescue the victims, because in my book you need you know recurring victims, um, they had to uh, get a feel for the video game. They had to work with somebody who knew the video game. And uh, or else be you know a gamer themselves, and that's basically where the idea came from. I, I made up a game, uh, the Whispering Man action adventure game, survival action adventure game, because I imagine most of your uh, your listeners are familiar with the different categories of games. And um, so it was um, uh, uh, apparently uh, a, the the bad guy became so obsessed with this game he started to uh, reenact it in real life and. Uh, my hero, Coulter Shaw, gets involved in the case, and uh, he has to uh, learn a bit about the game and uh, try to uh, stop the fellow before he strikes again. So was this game that you dreamed up, The Whispering Man, was that modeled on any particular games, or was that purely out of your own imagination? 
no, that was my uh, my imagination. I uh, and I, you know, I have to say, I worked backwards. Uh, I needed a a game. I, th- that was the concept. I knew I wanted to have the the game, uh, you know, kind of a popular Blizzard type Blizzard Entertainment game or ID, one of the you know the big companies. I, it, I made up a company too. It's not uh, it's not a one of the um, the real companies, but a, a big kind of game that was you know a little glitzy and people would uh, enjoy playing it. But then I needed it to fit certain requirements, such as a victim would be um, secreted in a uh, you know an abandoned location. I wanted it to be um, the, the graphics to be good, but I didn't want it to be a shooter game. I wanted it to be more of the action adventure, try to figure out the clues. I wanted it to be a, uh, a more peg. I wanted other people to play. And I like the idea. This just uh, occurred to me. I like the idea of uh, the uh, person being abandoned with five objects. And they had to use those objects either as weapons or as a uh, uh, possibly for, for barter to uh, trade with another player or possibly as a way to signal for escape. And um, that gave me a chance to um, you know create a world where the victim in real life was given these objects too, which is in fact a clue that leads Coulter to, to realize that it's based on a game. And uh, so that I, I uh, constructed the game that way. And uh, I, I've been, I've, I've been on tour now and a couple of people have asked me if it's a real game and they, they would they say, Oh, that sounds like something I'd like to like to play. So. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you, since, since you mentioned that you spent eight months doing research and, you know, I, I assume that, you know, you did a lot of, well, you actually mentioned that you did a lot of, you read a lot of books about video games, this research for this, but I, I could see the the danger of uh, eight months of research into video games turning into just eight months of playing video games, if you're not careful. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I really didn't know much, and I, I know much about them. And I've, I've played off and on over the years, I uh, I was a Pong guy. Uh, I was in uh, law school, and my girlfriend at the time bought me uh, the the I guess it was maybe the first uh, you know really uh, home video game. It was sort of even pre console back in the I guess that'd be back in the seventies. And uh, you know I have to say you can only watch the ball bouncing back and forth for so long, but it was kind of fun. And then I, but I did, one thing I, I, I was more interested in was the text-based games. Adventure uh, was the, um, uh, really the first big one. And that is um, where, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but yeah, it's yeah, all, sure. okay, yeah, well, of course you know. They're, they're you know, for your, for your listeners who aren't, you uh, interact with the computer by writing things. And uh, it will respond, and it could be, uh, you know the uh, the cave. I can't think of the the colossal. Was it the colossal? Yeah, colossal cave, cave adventure. Yeah, that's it. That's that became a slightly more sophisticated version, and there were only certain. The algorithms were very simple back then, and there were only certain um, uh, uh, comments or uh, certain things that you could type in that it would recognize. So, for instance, you would uh, need an axe, and the cave would say, "There is an axe in front of you," and you think, "Well, I need an axe," and so you type, "Pick up axe." And you got a question mark, and nothing happened. And it was banded down and pick up X, and that's what worked. Um, and I, I remember that. Uh, and then, and, you know, I played Fight Flight Simulator, and uh, you know, then I didn't really, didn't really play too much until you know more recently with a stepson and my nieces, and we've done you know Mario, some platform games. Um, I tried Halo. Um, I did a Connect, you know, the Xbox Connect, which is the um, uh, it's kind of like Wii, where you you don't actually have a controller, but you stand in front of a uh, a box that that uh, sees you, and you can um, uh, you can ski, you can play tennis, and you can box, and uh, and, and that was uh, that was kind of fun. Um, one one uh, game that I was quite interested in. It's not so much something you play, but you experience. Um, it's called No Man's Sky. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, it's the sort of galaxy exploration game. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. Um, I read about it in the New Yorker a few years ago, and uh, you know, you would know far more about this than I would. I'm sure your your listeners do too. But there was um, some type of an uh, algorithm software that created the uh, universe you went to on the on the fly. And and you know, I really I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but it's something like there were 14 million possibilities of planets 
that did not exist until you went to that segment of the uh, uh, the universe. And, and then there were probably universes upon universes. And I, I found that just uh, just fascinating. But uh, in general, it's it's I, I've had sort of a uh, uh, I guess I'd say lukewarm uh, relationship with games. I remember my sister gave me a crime game a few years ago because I write criminal novels, and you were a detective, and you had to uh, you know get up in the morning, uh, get in your car, and go, go solve the crime. And so you wake up in the morning, and you've got to you, I, I walk out to the car. Where are the keys? I'd have to walk back in the house and get the keys. Oh, I should lock the door. Put your security system on. And I, uh, you know, I didn't even get to the part where I could shoot the bad guy. I was just trying to get to the office and uh, interrogate somebody. So I have to say, I got a little, um, little bored with them. But, uh, but in general, I, uh, you know, I've had fun uh, looking at them for the, uh, uh, for the book. But I, I have to say, I'm not much of a gamer. So you mentioned the text, uh, text-based adventure game. I actually have a funny story about that because my parents both worked for IBM. And this is even before personal computers. I was a, a baby and they had brought me to the lab. And you could only play the game on a terminal, you know, because it was on a mainframe. So you, ha- mm-hmm. you had to leave your right. office. Mm-hmm. So they had kind of left me in their office and had gone to play adventure. And I started crying and they didn't hear me. And one of the <laughs> security people came around and just found this unattended baby and, and was like, you know, and found, found my parents and was like, you know, your baby's crying and they're just sitting there playing video games, you know. There's, there's probably an offense in the, if they were in New York, they were probably in New York, they were IBM, you know, in the, the state penal code for uh, like uh, child, computer child neglect or something <laughs> along those lines. Yeah. Well, but I mean, you know, oh, and, and, you know, video games, they do have a way of just sucking you in. And um, and a lot of people have kind of negative feelings about video games, particularly when I was growing up in the like in the 90s, there was a lot of negative feelings about gamers. And you you reference that a little bit in the book. There's a, a character, Anthony Prescott, and he says, you ask me, I think anyone who plays video games is a bit off. Is that mm-hmm. um, is that an attitude you think is still pretty prevalent? I would think not. Uh, I mean, certainly to some extent, you know, I'm sure there's a portion of the uh, swath of the country where that's uh, looked, looked down upon. Uh, I, I've actually heard, and I can't cite it specifically, but something I'd read that uh, some people in a, uh, you know, I guess I'll say the Bible Belt, uh, felt that the games are the, the devil's handiwork. And if you look at some of the games, of course, there's a great deal of violence. Uh, Grand Theft Auto, for instance, so where the, the goal is uh, to well, you know, murder police and murder people. There's more to it than that, but you certainly get points for doing that. And I can, I think, there's uh, uh, gamers could be a pariah in, in certain circles. But I, I found in my research that I was astonished at how big the industry was. It's it's bigger than Hollywood. It has, um, I think, at any given moment, uh, 120 million people in the United States playing some form of a game Not it i should say any during any given day at some point play a video game and it might be uh, just a handheld candy crush or uh, angry birds or it could be uh, someone who's been playing uh, uh you know doom uh, non-stop or Fortnite non-stop for uh, three or four hours uh the uh i had also thought that it was mostly young people playing and you know probably it is but uh, but the uh, a, a sizable number of people over uh, 50 play, I mean, like millions, tens of tens of millions play, uh, somewhat regularly. So um, I don't think there's um, there's really a um, you know too much of a, a dark side that people are looking at. I, I did find that um, the the big concern I think is the uh, the health issue that they do have the addictive quality. And the, one of the epigrams in the book is a quotation from the World Health Organization that says basically it, it can be uh, addictive behavior. And, you know, it's an addiction like anything else. So, you know, liquor can be, uh, certain medications can be harmful. Uh, any kind of behavior can be harmful in excess. But the, um, uh, with the video games, uh, I was a little surprised that the WHO had, had chimed in on this, but apparently they feel it is a, uh, uh, it can be a bit of a concern if it interferes with, you know, normal functioning of life. I mean, one of the characters in the book mentions this article from American scientist called Can Video Games Be Good For You? I assume that's a real article. Mm-hmm. I didn't look that up. But... It is. Yeah, it is. It's actually Scientific America. And only because I, uh, um, you know, didn't want to go to the trouble to get permission. I don't <laughs> quote it. it. Actually, if there's a quote in there, it's something I made up, a paraphrase. But that is one thing I found quite interesting, that um, um, games 
can produce some benefits. It, you know, the science may be out on some of the issues, but uh, for autism, for dyslexia, they keep the um, an aging mind agile. I, I don't know that this made it into the book, but I, I heard too that um, the um, um, there, there's an analgesic effect. And you know, I'm not a not a doctor, but there's something about video games that if you concentrate on them enough, and you know, games games are um, you know they they really do draw your attention. You don't want that that creature from Doom to to get you, and you want to be sure you survive to do the Fortnite dance. And uh, <laughs> so you're so concentrating on on these that you kind of forget your uh, forget your pain. I, I, you know, I'd I'd like to see more studies on that. Um, and I also you know found that um, oddly enough, sitting in a a dark room by yourself, you'd think really would be harmful to social interaction, but there are some people who feel that it has uh, uh, brought people who are otherwise uh, extremely introverted, uh, have a lot of trouble connecting, brought them out into society, and that carries over into the uh, real world, even if you're you know, playing a, uh, an online role-playing game as antagonists. Nonetheless, you also occasionally play with uh, someone on your team, and that uh, it's, it's made people more social. So I... Um, uh, and then, you know, I have to say, too, that who doesn't like to waste time? I Myself, my favorite is watching YouTube, uh, baby goats in pajamas. They're always fun. And uh, that, that kind of, you know, it's a stress reliever. They, they take stress away. And whereas you have to concentrate on the game, of course, it's, I don't know, I find it, when I was playing, kind of a, a pleasant concentration. You know, it's very exciting. You get very involved in the game. And I came away with a, kind of a cathartic experience, even though I almost uniformly was uh, slaughtered at, at <laughs> some point by people who have played far more than I. And, uh, you know, realistically, who, who's the avatar? You don't know. It's probably like an eight-year-old kid in Germany or someone who saw this, uh, this uh, avatar lumbering around, not knowing what he was doing, and bang, I was dispatched. <laughs> well, so one of the characters in the book is uh, Maddie Poole, who's sort of mm -hmm. a... Um... Uh, a Twitch streamer. You want to talk about that mm -hmm. character? Yeah, uh, that actually uh, again was a, uh, insp inspired by the, uh, uh, the new, an article in the New Yorker, and I, I can't remember the um, um, the particular fellow that, who was profiled. But I didn't know I didn't know about Twitch at that point, and there are other sites. And just for you listeners who aren't familiar, that's a a site where you watch people play games, and you can watch your favorite gamers. Uh, the gamers have um, the um, the software allows you to see their screen, but you also see them on camera, and they usually have a, a ongoing commentary about in uh, you know Call of Duty why they're running over here to shoot this this fellow, or why they're using this weapon, or what they're going to do uh, do now. And I had no idea that world existed, and then I learned that these people have agents. Uh, they may, can make millions of dollars a year. They are uh, sponsored by uh, things like, I, I, I assume, like Red Bull or, you know, caffeine drinks and so forth. And Maddie is uh, someone who does this uh, for a living. And uh, she, but she has a, a bit of uh, ethics about it, that she doesn't want to um, become too, uh, too glitzy. For her, the, uh, the world exists between her and whatever game she's playing, and she plays a lot. She's particularly enamored of Doom, which was, really one of the first uh, shooter games going back a long time. And uh, we we begin to wonder why she is so uh, obsessed with, with the plane and why some of her be behavior seems a little curious. Well, Coulter um, falls in with her uh, and uses her as a, um, I guess we'd say an expert to walk him through the video gaming world and give him uh, some idea of what this uh, this fellow who created the uh, who's playing the whispering man in real life, what he might be up to, and maybe some ways in which to entrap him. But uh, for a while, Maddie remains a bit of a mystery character, and I don't want to give anything away. But there is a bit of a revelation, and it could be good, it could be bad uh, in terms of the story. But um, she is representative of people who really uh, uh, really exist and who can make millions of dollars, if not actually on. Uh, uh, Twitch, but on the um, uh, the contests uh, that are held at uh, like the C3 and uh, well, I made up C3. <laughs> it's E3 is the the real uh, exposition. But there are many uh, you know gaming expositions around the uh, around the world actually. And uh, while I was researching it, I think a team from Japan won uh, five million dollars uh, 
uh, and I can't remember what game they were playing, and playing in a, an auditorium of it had to be tens of thousands of people. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 huge. Um, well, so with these, you mentioned that you you um, read these all these books for research. Um, you mm-hmm. mentioned books like Console Wars and Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. I was just curious, mm-hmm. how did you find those books? Was it someone recommending those to you, or were you just kind of like clicking around on Amazon, or how did you find all those no, books on mostly, video games? No, mostly Amazon. Again, I do most of my uh, re- uh, research uh, on my own. I didn't uh, didn't talk to any experts uh, in the field. I do have a friend who was in national security. And uh, he was telling me about uh, he, he played. He, he found that games kind of helped him in his uh, in his work. I mean, he didn't fly drones or anything like that, but he he liked the way uh, that game gamers were. Um, I guess they say kind of more on the cutting edge because when they're beholden to their imagination, and uh, of course uh, you know the consumers too, they'd come up with very clever uh, algorithms and clever. Uh, Concepts. So uh, he, he said he enjoyed playing, and it uh, to some extent helped him in his uh, helped him in his work. And he recommended, I think it was, um, oh man, I don't have the book in book in front of me now, but one that dealt with um, uh, the history of uh, of gaming, going back uh, to the. I, and I didn't realize that video games have been around since the 1950s. Of course, played then on, on mainframes. I think there maybe were, uh, uh, you know, some smaller. It, we, of course, no personal computers back then, but, uh, you know, maybe it wasn't ENIAC or some of these huge machines, but some, some significant sized um, uh, computer. And uh, it, it, the, the book spent a lot of time about that and how the uh, the games were created mostly uh, within the uh, computer labs to try to uh, uh, show off uh, the uh, skills of the, uh, the designers, software uh, coders and so forth, and see what, what they could actually do. Yeah. You mentioned Doom. If you haven't read it, there's a book called Masters of Doom by David Kushner, which is absolutely amazing. It's such a good book oh, okay. about video games. All right. Yeah, because um, I'm you know a bit hooked now on the subject, and I may very well uh, uh, I'm, I'm doing a sequel to the um, the Never Game now, but not set in Silicon Valley. Sequel in the sense that at the end of the Never Game, there's sort of a springboard to a, another reward that Coulter Shaw may be pursuing, and uh, but. I'm, I'm, I'm making a little culture Shaw universe so that um, there will be, I almost gave something away here, but there <laughs> will be characters in the never game who uh, appear in uh, future books. And uh, now that he has a, uh, a sense of the, um, uh, what the gaming world is like in Silicon Valley and, and the fact that he, he was born near the Valley, he was born in San Francisco or up in near Berkeley. Um, he'll, he'll be going back there. So I'll, uh, I'll uh, I'll look that up. It's called Masters of Doom. Was that Masters of Doom? Yeah, and also you know um, Blake J. Harris, who wrote Console Wars, he has a new book out. I just interviewed him about it called uh, The History of the Future. And if you're interested in conspiracies in Silicon Valley, there's a that's an oh, amazing yeah. real life one. So uh, you should okay, definitely check that I'll, I'll out. I'll look too. that up. Well, now did he happen to mention? I heard that uh, if I remember correctly, that uh, Seth Rogen was thinking of doing a movie about Console Wars, um, and uh, you know maybe one of these Elizabeth Holmes kind of biopic uh, fact factual but done uh uh done up for hollywood did he say anything about that is that in the works yeah so the they're doing both a documentary and it's now it was a feature film but it's now a tv series uh i think oh it is really oh okay. yeah and and that's that's in development but i think i think he said there's you know it's it's moving along now i think they had a pilot script that was finished um but yeah hopefully that'll be out soon cuz the i'm really looking forward to that look forward to reading that or seeing that i should say yeah yeah um so uh in actually when you're at the same point where you're listing all these books that you read you also mentioned that your earlier novel you mentioned um roadside crosses you say that also involves video mm-hmm. games so i was mm-hmm. just curious what it was like writing about video games in 2009 versus 2019 i um uh, it played a minor part of the um uh, of the book that was the one about the uh primarily about the the blogger who was uh creating fake news for his own nefarious uses. But um, one of the uh, the subplots in the book was about a young man who was um, bullied. And he, um, you know, as often happens, it's when you're online, it's very easy to uh, uh, diss someone and say uh, horrible, horrible things about him. And then it, it, it turned out that uh, there was somebody who, who was, uh, was bullying him might have had something to do with the main case. 
And yet, you know, through proxies and tour and uh, which were in existence then, it's it's, it's very hard uh, to trace back uh, to see who's actually um, playing the game. And there are ways to, um, you know, either play without a credit card or log on or even hack in. It's not an, not uncommon for players to do that. So the police couldn't find who this person was uh, tormenting the kid. And if they could, the um, the avatar or whoever was playing the avatar might very well have a connection to the, the overall uh, murders that were going on. So what happens but my uh, detective hero, uh, Catherine Dance, who's a kinesics expert, and kinesics is a body language, in effect, sits down with the young man and uses body language analysis to see what she can learn about the avatar. Uh, and, you know, admittedly, it was a bit far-fetched, hmm. but what what she learned was, uh, you know, it was some years ago now, but I, I guess she would see what kind of weapon uh, he or she used, maybe whether they were left-handed or right-handed, and then combined with some knowledge of the game, uh, I think it was, it was like, a, it may have been World of Warcraft, actually, which is, of course, a massive online role-playing game uh, at that time, at, at, during the, whenever that was written, probably 10 years ago. There were easily a hundred thousand people playing at, at one time, and uh, but but she she managed through her own analysis of the avatar's actions and through what the uh, the boy the bully boy knew to narrow down uh, maybe a geographic locale and in in some way you know it, it helped solve the crime. It didn't really uh, you know I have to say it didn't didn't really. It would have been too miraculous if she said, "Oh, it's Fred Jones." Of course, I should have seen that, but um, <laughs> but it did it did help. So I had uh, had some fun uh, fun with that. Um, but I'll tell you about the research for that because at that point I knew nothing about video games. It had been adventure, pong, and maybe a uh, you know Pac Man and Ms. Pac Man. Uh, but uh, I <laughs> I hired uh, the daughter of a um, uh, very good very very good friends of mine. And uh, she was going to uh, Duke University. Uh, she's a freshman, I guess. And she was quite the gamer. And I said, um, can you walk me uh, through some of the games? So we joined World of Warcraft, and she gave me tips and, and played. And um, then I said, uh, okay, that's that, that, it's very helpful. Now, um, one thing that you could really help me with, too, is um, uh, the language. Because the, um, the kids in this story, the, the kid who's bullied, He's in uh, middle school, I guess early high school. Uh, maybe he's 15, I think, 14 or 15. And I said, uh, you know, I want the language to be authentic, not, not computer language. I mean, I want the, you know, the, um, and what, what the kids say nowadays. And she said, oh, I don't know that. That was four years ago. But yeah, yeah. you can hire my, you can hire my younger sister who was 14. And so, uh, I did. And she gave me the lingo of the uh, 14 year old. She was not really much of a game gamer, but uh, I thought that was so funny. You know, we had we had to outsource the research to a middle schooler. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that you were writing about this sort of fake news, people smearing each other on social media kind of stuff in 2009. I mean, I know it was going on then, but it just seems like it's gotten 100 times worse since then. Uh, it's a uh, it's just shocking. I mean, I, I went to journalism school, University of Missouri. I worked as a reporter for uh, for some years, and you know we would not think of reporting any story, publishing anything. I did print uh, print journals, magazines mostly. We would not think of publishing anything unless we had multiple sources of attribution. Uh, we researched for uh, weeks, uh, sometimes months, before we uh, published the uh, the story. We, we stood by everything; it was completely accurate. Um, and now this this concept of uh, the, the on the one hand the, just the cavalier attitude about news I say it so it must be true, and then the the weaponizing of information, and uh, that was you know, true, in, true in my book. But now we see it on uh, a daily basis, uh, and it, it's uh, you know in, intended to destroy careers, uh, both in politics and uh, you know among. Uh, uh, business people. Uh, I, I just find it, uh, I find it troubling, extremely troubling. Yeah. And not just the, I say it, therefore it's true, but the so-and-so said it, and now I'm going to pass it along without checking whether it's true or not, even if I'm a journalist. I mean, that's, I just find that so distressing. The the, um, the game of telephone, remember that? You yeah, yeah. To someone and 
I, and I, I do hear uh, quite a bit, and I'm, I'm giving away my leanings here, but I'm very troubled to hear about this this evil uh, media. You know, the, the liberal media, often that, that adjective is not used because capital M media is uh, uh, kind of a, a, a trope. You know, it's a, a key word for uh, maybe NPR, the New York Times. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, the, a little less the, the Wall Street Journal, but the Washington Post, uh, certainly. And, um, you know, me, media, it's, it's the First Amendment, folks. Uh, this is what keeps us free. This is what uh, makes sure that we uh, have and have a democracy that we can be proud of and that protects us. And uh, I see a lot of erosion, sadly, a lot of erosion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, would you do you think there's anything to do about that or like what would you what would you want to say to people to improve the situation well for one thing i found it really doesn't help to say say things to people uh there's so much uh entrenched attitude now uh, that i find uh, you know quite troubling i really don't talk politics with my uh with my friends those who feel the opposite uh of, of my way they're still good friends i still enjoy their company but it just serves no purpose i'm not going to change their uh their minds, and uh, they're not going to change my mind. What I, I say to people is, uh, well, you know, that's an interesting, interesting point. If it comes up, uh, you know, I might, I might want to look at at this, and I occasionally will cite an article or cite something that I feel is a, a fairly accurate representation of the, the truth. And uh, you know, maybe they'll, maybe they'll look at it. I, I, I do feel in the, you know, the, 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 the huge view, the overview. Uh, we are uh, the greatest country on earth. We have systems in place. We do have the First Amendment so that, you know, the people who do uh, say things that are untrue, um, there is a, a mechanism for that to be uh, brought to light. So uh, I'm not necessarily pessimistic, but I, I have to say it's, it's a lot different from when I was uh, studying journalism in the 1960s and 70s. And we had first fewer outlets. We had uh, the uh, nightly news. Uh, Huntley and Brinkley, uh, Walter Cronkite, of course. Uh, it, it was so ironic back then. Your, your listeners, I think many of them know this, but you know, we had basically uh, an hour and a half of news a day. Uh, there would be the six o'clock national news. I think it was local news. I grew up in Chicago, uh, probably WGN from uh, probably five to six, and uh, that included some, uh, you know, some soft human interest kind of things. And then I think it was eleven o'clock news. And I can't get my times just right, but that was probably just before Johnny Carson. And, uh, you know, we, we survived pretty well with that. And we got many more newspapers, of course, but it, just in terms of broadcast. Uh, now, of course, it's uh, uh, every person for himself 24-7. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on from that depressing subject to another <laughs> another depressing subject, which I, I didn't even know about this so, so much. But, uh, well, I mean, I mean, obviously, I knew about the skyrocketing cost of living in Silicon Valley, but... In the novel, you say that there are these kind of like tent cities in um, parking lots where people, mm -hmm. even though they, they have good jobs in tech or something, but they can't even afford to yeah. live close enough to work. So they have to like live in these sort of temporary tents, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, I, the article I read, I, I did not witness any of that myself, but uh, the article I read, uh, not so much tents, but they uh, just live out of their car. I mean, maybe they would have a... Uh, um, uh, you know, some kind of little camping thing connected to their car. But um, and, and there's there's that issue. There's the issue of people who do want to commute having to commute uh, three hours or so. Um, my sister lives in Monterey, which is on a, a good day, uh, probably two little over two hours uh, drive. There are people uh, moving there to commute to Silicon Valley, and of course that that would be during rush hour. So they've got three hours each way. And of course, there has to be a subplot in the Never Game about, uh, and I'm not going to give anything away here, but uh, is perhaps um, real estate behind what's going on? And uh, you know, when when we authors who write murder mysteries and, and thrillers uh, create villains, uh, you you really don't have to sketch out the bad guy very. Uh, in, in, in much detail. All you have to do is say they, they run a bank, they own a drug company, or they're in real estate. <laughs> and right away, that's the, you know, you, the uh, Snidely Whiplash image uh, comes to mind. And uh, as far as how, how, how that's going to be fixed, I, I just don't 
I, I have no, I have no clue. Maybe a real estate. We don't know how to, you know, real estate bubble to pop. And I think there it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty endemic. I don't think we're going to, I don't, I don't really think it's a bubble suggests a false uh, excess valuation. I don't think that's the case. I think it's market uh, supply and demand. Well, so one of these game developers in the novel is planning to build a development called Siliconville. What do you think about mm-hmm. that? That idea? Uh, well, that yeah, uh, that was a um, an idea, and I'll, I'll just mention it briefly. It's a, um, a consortium of uh, game developers and producers and studios, and some other uh, Silicon Valley uh, people, uh, coders, and I, I think I may have an uh, uh, venture. Um, venture capital person involved in that or not that that really wants to um uh well on on one hand on the one hand wants to help people out people who live there and create low-cost uh, housing and on the other hand uh the uh, consortium that's done this has a, uh, a a rather clever idea because they don't want to see the migration of the brain trust from silicon valley and uh there's uh, there's quite a bit of that i was in um um Denver on book tour just the other day, and the uh, fellow who's driving me uh, to the event pointed out that this is our new high tech area. He said this is our Silicon Valley. I don't remember what part of uh, uh, of Denver it was. I think it was near Highlands Ranch, south of south of Denver. And he said that's going to be uh, Colorado's uh, Silicon Valley. And in my research, I, I learned that that's true. There's a uh, you know certainly in um, Scotland there's Silicon Glen, which I think is uh, Glasgow. And uh, you know everybody has the the tech area, uh, but uh, there is there are people who just you know they can't they can't afford to live there. They simply can't do it. And uh, you know the cost of living in uh, Silicon Valley is, has always been high. San Francisco Bay Area. In fact, I just heard something on. Um, uh, uh, oh wait, wait! Don't tell me that great NPR uh, funny quiz show uh, where uh, in San Francisco office space is so expensive. People are um, taking a parking space, putting a table and chairs, and of course everybody's got a you know a Wi-Fi modem now, and they've got their computer and telephone, and that is their office. As long as they keep feeding money <laughs> into the meter, there's uh, apparently nothing one can do to kick them out. I, I don't think the law, at least uh, as of a couple of weeks ago when I was listening to the program, uh, the, the, the the law doesn't say thou thou shalt park a car there. Simply. Thou shalt feed the meter. I suspect the city council may be addressing this issue, but but that does give you an idea of the uh, you know the really insane uh, rents of the area. Well, then people can just get a van with their desk inside. I mean, that's what um, Jason Blum. I don't know if you know him. He's the uh, horror film uh, producer, but he has like a van with a desk in it, and he just drives around to meetings and stuff and works out of his van. Oh, that's a, a great idea. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that actually video games are more profitable than Hollywood right now. And I feel like there are so many crime and thriller stories set in and around the film industry. And I don't know of too many crime and thriller stories set around the video game industry. Are there, are there ones that you should know of that I'm I'm missing? I didn't find any. And it's one of the reasons I, uh, I picked that, uh, pick that topic. Um, and, and I, you know, go to Amazon's a source for so much stuff. And I kind of typed in those search engine words and didn't see anything. Um, you know, occasionally there'll be a um, uh, murder mystery that involves, uh, you know, it might involve data mining or hacking, but nothing in Silicon Valley that I uh, that I could find. Um, and I, you know, I like to be on the cutting edge of that. Um, and the, 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 one of the things that I, I found quite quite interesting was the uh, the segments of the market that are growing exponentially growing, and that is not the uh, consoles or the computers. Um, that, that seems to be pretty steady. It's not eroding. It's not a zero-sum game. Those are still pretty st- steady with most people, I think, the, the slight majority playing on computers. Uh, but then there's you know, always the PlayStation and Xbox and the um, uh, Switch. I think that's the new Nintendo uh, system. But the uh, the handheld games, the smartphone games, it's just uh, – I, and I don't have the figures in front of me, but it's I just taken off like gangbusters. And when I'm uh, – uh, you know, we, we people who write books, we're – we do it because we we do feel that a novel is, uh, you know, probably the the richest experience uh, of storytelling. I, I like I like it because the, the readers are kind of partners with us. So I may write a passage and I put some you know adjectives in and describe something, and I 
uh, you know, fairly accurately describe the character and what his or her voice sounds like. But then the reader takes it from there, and that makes the the story part of their uh, part of their mind. So I'm always on the lookout for are people still reading, and if so, what are they reading, and what are my main forms of competition? So um, whenever I'm on a plane, which I'm I am quite a bit uh, on uh, book touring for research, I was walk to the back to use the restroom back there, and then I walk forward slowly and see what people are doing. And I, I think there are a lot of readers, uh, you know, often on the uh, digital form, their Kindles or uh, the um, uh, iBook uh, platforms, but uh, they're playing a lot of games and it's, it's um, not on the computers. It's on their phones. And some of them are what, uh, um, you know, I, I think I heard the phrase time wasters like Candy Crush. And I hope I haven't insulted everybody out mm-hmm. there, but, you know, who doesn't like to waste times? I mentioned YouTube videos of baby goats in pajamas. I like to waste mm-hmm. time too, but, um, uh, but I, I see a lot of those and some that are actually are, are rather uh, sophisticated, um, and, you know, then we had Tetris from years ago, which I think may have been the most popular video game ever. Um, the statistics seem a little, uh, uh, they, they go back and forth a bit. But, uh, you know, Tetris was kind of moving blocks in a, a line. or It, uh, it was uh, it was not a uh, action adventure game or a shooter game. You just had to move uh, uh, an object from one point to another and try to beat the system. Right. All right. So before we run out of time, I also you mentioned um, reading The Difference Engine by William Gibson and Bruce Sterling. And I was oh, yeah. just curious if you could yeah. talk about what how much interest you have in science fiction and how much science fiction have you read? Uh, I read a lot of science fiction when I was uh, younger. Uh, Ray Bradbury was one of my all time favorite writers. And I have to say, one of the things I liked most about his um, science fiction was that it it kind of emphasized the fiction more than the science part. Certainly there were space people, there were um, um, uh, alien uh, creatures. There were uh, things that we would now look at as, you know, the early, the 1950s, uh, early aspects of uh, computers. But but there were really human interest stories that, that could have been taken out of the, the science context. Um, I read uh, Isaac Asimov, um, Stranger in a Strange Land, I loved. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, and uh, I would I would recommend to the um, your listeners who have not read it. It's a very very short short piece. Um, Arthur C. Clarke's The Sentinel, which was the story that inspired 2001. It's entirely different. You would not recognize it. it you largely wouldn't recognize it. There's a monolith involved, but uh, it's a, a just a stunning and a harrowing uh, piece of short fiction. Um, but, you know, I read some of um, the, um, oh, Philip K. Dick, of course, uh, uh, which was uh, fu- largely futuristic writing. Um, I, I, and I, I thought about maybe going going that route, but I, I, I like crime writing better because my goal is to write the most emotionally engaging story I possibly can. I want readers to open the book to page one and just not stop. and Part of doing that is to create in readers' minds a, a, a realistic threat, a credible threat. And writers like J.K. Rowling, we all know Hogwarts isn't Hogwarts isn't isn't real, but nonetheless, she is so masterful. She can bring off that sense that uh, I am so worried that something's going to happen to to uh, Harry or Hermione or Ron that we keep ripping through those pages. Uh, Stephen King creates. Um, horror worlds that are not real, but nonetheless, he can uh, keep the pot boiling. I'm a little more comfortable in writing about credible threats, like the fellow sitting next to you on the bus, maybe doing something kind of weird with his fingers. He's sending a signal to something. What on earth is he doing there? Clearly, he's a bit insane. And you, so you start to say, you know, I saw somebody on the, on the bus who was doing something like that. Now I feel kind of nervous. So I want to bring the tension home um, to the reader's uh, in a way that I think that at least I would not feel comfortable trying to do with science fiction or fantasy or uh, horror. But uh, I would recommend The Difference Engine, um, which is uh, a wonderful uh, book. I, I mean, anything that William Gibson does, does is great. I, I believe he created a book a few years ago, uh, not an expensive book, that um, uh, destroyed itself. Uh, I, 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 you'd have to fact check it, but I was fascinated with it. Um, it was a science fiction book. I think the uh, it was printed on something that went exposed to the air, 
uh, disappeared. So you basically had a, maybe a week to read it. And uh, I just thought, what a clever idea. Hmm. Yeah, I, I sort of vaguely remember that, but I couldn't tell you the details either. But I think it's interesting with books like The Never Game sort of shows that there's kind of a blurring uh, between science fiction and crime fiction as the technology you know, continues to advance, that these things that would have been science fiction 30 years ago are now just crime fiction, you know? Well, it's, uh, I look at the, uh, uh, the, uh, the fact is I'm talking to you on a, a cell phone that is smarter <laughs> than ENIAC from, uh, you know, one of the first, uh, computers, uh, uh, from 60 years ago. And, uh, you know, tomorrow I'll open up my computer to the tech page of the times and there'll be, uh, you know, some new, new thing. Uh, they'll be implanting phones in us and our brains pretty soon, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are there any other uh, books or stories of yours that you th you think would particularly appeal to Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listeners? Well, you know, Dave, it's very funny. I, I wrote The Blue Nowhere. That was 20 years ago. And I thought, okay, that's that's good. That's my tech book. And it um, has some really good twists and turns in it. And if anybody is interested in the early days of Silicon Valley, the, uh, you know, the uh, Palo Alto Research Center days, the uh, uh, Hewlett-Packard, uh, of course, uh, Waz and uh, Steve Jobs, um, the, uh, the the band, uh, all the all the folks creating uh, uh, um, the um, computer technology in their garages and so forth. That's a it's a good book uh, for them to read. Um, okay, it's all over with. Last tech book I'm writing. On to other stuff: murders, uh, you know, kidnappings, uh, serial crimes. Wonderful. Then along comes this idea of uh, blogging. And I thought, you know, blogging, that's kind of interesting. Now, is it technically uh, 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 technology? Well, in a way it is, because there really wasn't a platform for that until uh, the personal computers came about and, you know, smartphones, because presumably you could do a, a type of blog on shortwave radio, maybe, or uh, some kind of terrestrial station. But uh, technology made that possible. And then, of course, the... Um, uh, the uh, video games, uh, the, the bullying became something. And then uh, uh, for that, that was my um, uh, my book, Red Side Crosses. And so, okay, I'll do two books. That'll be my duet. And then I, I became fascinated with uh, data mining and the amount of information that the uh, uh, both commercial operations and the government has on us for good and bad. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty balanced in the book. There's some good stuff that comes out of data mining. Lives are saved, but then also lives are lost thanks to it. So that's it. Okay, the, the trilogy, perfect. Last time I'm writing a tech book. And then my niece killed me in Minecraft. <laughs> and I said, okay, now it's, now it's going to be a quartet. There's a book called The Steel Kiss I came across references to that sounds like it might have a tech, some sort of technology angle. Uh, it does. It's more about uh, product liability, but there's uh, it's about smart products. Uh, so it does have a uh, it does have a tech side to it. It's really more about um, manufacturing issues. Uh, I was a product lawyer, a liability lawyer, some years ago, and I wanted to bring that into uh, the fray. But uh, yeah, it does. I mean, there's a, a scene there where um, uh, you know the, the the baby monitor hacking issues. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because they're you know they're Wi-Fi enabled and they're relatively easy to uh, when there's a handshake between the uh, the smartphone. And the server, it's possible, not, it's not easy, but it's possible to get into that. And there were, uh, you know, people falling through stairs and, uh, renegade, uh, buzzsaws going off. But the, the scene that most, uh, readers seem to be mo uh, the, uh, troubled them the most was a, uh, baby monitor hacking in which nobody, no child was hurt. I didn't, in my books, <laughs> I never heard a child, I never heard an animal. That's, those are my rules. But the, uh, mom and dad have left uh, the child. No, no, they're not going to play adventure, but they leave the child <laughs> in a, um, in a, uh, the crib with the baby monitor right there and go off to, um, uh, go off to, uh, try to woo a client. The, uh, the father's a lawyer and they're trying to woo the client into the, uh, his firm and, uh, leave the baby, but they, they've got the, you know, the baby monitor right there and what happens, but, uh, the bad guy hacks into the system and he, um, is now speaking to the baby from a remote location. He's nowhere near the child, but he's saying, Oh, look, uh, you know, cute little uh, Sally, because he's hacked into their system. He knows the name. Oh, cute little Sally. Uh, don't you want to come live with, with me now? And of course the parents hear this and they're, uh, uh, absolutely mortified. And they, they run into the room and see that there's, he's not there. It was just done basically as a practical joke because the father had, uh, uh had insulted this uh, fellow, not, not knowing who it was. And, uh, 
the people who had kids, of course, said that was, that was the scare. I'm sorry the guy got, uh, you know, ca- caught in the, the tumbling elevator in the opening scene, but that was the scariest scene to them. And <laughs> no one was actually injured. <laughs> All right. So unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. Do you have any, just any final thoughts or just anything else you wanted to mention? No, no, no I, a really great conversation. Time flew by. I didn't even take a look at the at the clock, but I uh, really enjoyed it. And I, again, my compliments to you on a great, great podcast. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. And yeah, I know you're on tour, so I'll let you go and you know, get, get on with that. And I, you know, I know you have a really busy schedule, but I just want to thank you again, Jeffrey Deaver, so much for joining us. The new book is called The Never Game. So Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Dave, thank you. You take care now. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Jeffrey Deaver for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.